Welcome to the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number four. Today's special guest, Arash Samander. This bonus episode of the Game Dev Field Guide is sponsored by the patrons. You might think that this is some kind of time-delayed content or exclusive content that is partially released or something, but the Game Dev Field Guide community and the patrons specifically uh, provide for three episodes every month, and one of those episodes is the bonus episode that everyone gets for free. Um, and it's thanks to the generosity of the patrons. So if you'd like to become a patron and support the show, um, as well as you get to vote on an episode topic for the normal episodes of the Game Dev Field Guide once per month, and you get a sweet uh, purple name and role in the Discord, and people say, wow, that is an awesome purple name you have. So... <laughs> If any of those things uh, interest you, you can go to the Patreon. I will leave a link in the show notes. With that, let's go over to the first segment of the show. We're going to play everybody's favorite game, Buff Debuff. Buff Debuff is a segment where people on the community Discord submit a topic, and I don't write any notes, I don't write anything, I kind of just go off the cuff and I give you my opinion on whether or not something is buffed or debuffed. Um, and all that means is, do I think it's in like a positive trend or do I think it's in a negative trend? And usually I break the own, my own rules of the show <laughs> and operate in a gray area. Um, so, yeah, but I'll try to say if, for each topic today whether or not I think it's buffed or debuffed. But I can promise you it's probably going to come with some... <laughs> gray area caveats. So let's go ahead and start. The first topic is run-based games. And I think what the poster meant uh, by this, the poster is Scratch Wolf 8, by the way. I think what they meant are, well, they gave some examples, games like Blazing Beaks and Risk of Rain. I've never played Blazing Beaks, but I am familiar with Risk of Rain. And I guess run-based games could also be like roguelike games, right? The games where you lose all of your progress um, you start at the beginning of the game. You basically make a run through the game. And now that I'm thinking about it, it's not just roguelites that have this mechanic. In fact, I recently fired up the old N64 um, in my office, and in there was a copy of Pokemon Stadium 2. And in that, there's a cup challenge where there are runs. You get a random team, and you just see how far you can make it in the tournament. So yeah, I guess run mechanics, if we want to call them that, have been around for a long time. And I'm actually a kind of a big fan for run-based games, especially for indie devs. I think if you mix the run mechanics with like procedurally generated content, I think that works as like a really good force multiplier for how much you can get done as an indie. I think you can make a, a game with a lot of value for the player, a lot of playtime and, you know, just interesting content um, when you mix those two things. And I personally, as a gamer, I just like playing run-based games. So in my opinion, run-based games are buffed. Next topic is location-aware always-on games. These would be games like Pokemon Go and Wizards Unite. Um, I think Wizards Unite is like the Harry Potter version of Pokemon Go. <laughs> There's some 
Wizards Unite fans who are like mad I made that comparison. But anyways, um, and the poster Sean G on this one went on to say that he won't play it because of the privacy concerns. And he was watching an analysis of hard-to-solve game dev problems, and this came up. Always playable games um, are kind of at ends with playing safely and responsibly. Think about people like driving their cars, playing Pokemon Go. So yeah, I will say I have personal experience with this because um, at my old job, I used to make uh, augmented reality apps for construction. Like you could go onto a construction site and use your phone for augmented reality to, I don't know, like show uh, a new building or something like that. But I was talking to a guy who was kind of a professional developer of these apps, and he told me that one time they were doing a like the drains under a street, and they were using this technology, and on the app they rendered manhole covers over manholes, but in real life they weren't there. And one of the laborers, uh, or surveyors rather, was like, <laughs> I almost just stepped in an open manhole because I thought the cover was on because he was looking through his uh, phone app. So yeah, I know that's kind of adjacent um, to the topic uh, of location-aware always games, but I think it brings up a good point how if you're going to design one of these games, you really have to think about the safety of your players, and that is a whole new... Maybe that's a brand new thing that a game dev has to consider now with AR, VR. I suppose if you were collecting like online information, that would also be a safety concern. So yeah, it's kind of a new frontier of having to consider safety for your players. And lastly, Sean just said something. Um, while they aren't technically games, there are apps that gamify finding different types of things in nature. And this is my favorite um, sort of iteration on the idea of like gamifying outside or going locations and stuff like that. As I think some of you guys know, I'm a big fan of like um, field guides for nature books for, you know, plants and animals and rocks and stuff like that. It's why I named the Game Dev Field Guide the Game Dev Field Guide. Um, I was formerly a geologist. So I really like that aspect of life of like going out into nature and identifying things and like sorting them in lists and making collections. And so, yeah, a way to gamify that or turn it into an app. Um, back in my mobile dev days, I made a, a rock identifying app. And it was kind of janky because it was <laughs> one of the first apps I ever made. But, yeah, I guess in that iteration, location-aware always-on games are buffed. But in the other iterations and, like, having to consider the player's safety, I still think it's buffed because it has all sorts of really interesting opportunities. But... That comes with the caveat that you have to be really aware of your player's safety. Next topic is rotoscoping for 2D game art. I think rotoscoping is a extremely good method for people who maybe aren't the greatest at drawing. Maybe you haven't quite developed your art skills all the way. Um, rotoscoping kind of allows you to integrate your reference art into your animations, into your 2D game art a lot easier. It lets you get that like form of movement, which is like one of the hardest things to draw, in my opinion. I think it really helps with that. The downside to rotoscoping is that it is quite time intensive, um, which is why I don't think we see it as much because a lot of the content, game dev content, online is driven by game jam games or games you can make in a short amount of time because 
you know, you got to constantly be pushing content. And so I think rotoscoping isn't shown off as much because it's quite work intensive and takes a lot longer. But in my opinion, rotoscoping is definitely buffed, especially if you're kind of new to art and you're looking for a new, I guess not new, but a unique style. You should look into rotoscoping. That topic actually comes from Elliot, who I know uses rotoscoping for his game, and it has a very unique, clean animation look that, uh, yeah, you just don't see much. Next topic is randomly generated versus handcrafted loot. I'm going to be kind of quick on this one. I think handcrafted loot is definitely buffed, and randomly generated loot is debuffed. Of course, the best thing, in my opinion, is to have... um, combined um, because then you get both the bonuses of having lots of content from the random generation but interesting content from the handcrafted loot. I think a lot of games do it backwards and have the randomly generated stuff have a chance to be better than the handcrafted stuff and I think they do that because it kind of drives a longer end game. You know you're constantly trying to get that good roll on an item and yeah it just makes for a longer end game when you're trying to get that item that's already rare to get but you want it with like plus one strength or whatever i think it definitely depends on the genre because you know in some mmos people like grinding that kind of stuff they like to kind of just like shut their brain off and try for a really good piece of loot but yeah i'm just more of a fan of handcrafted loot in games where there is loot i usually like the handcrafted stuff because it comes with like a story and a kind of an identity and, and the item has a little bit of character to it so Yeah, handcrafted buffed, randomly generated, um, necessary, but debuffed. The next topic is mini-maps in first-person shooters, and this topic and the last one actually come from .eco, but .eco says I'm really interested in this topic, mini-maps in first-person shooters. I think this highly depends on what kind of shooter you're trying to make. If you're trying to make a fast-twitch shooter um, where map knowledge is essential, I think mini-maps are a good idea because it kind of closes the gaps between those who know the maps and those who don't. Really, if you think about it, the player always has a mini-map in their head. If they know the map, then they have a mini-map in their head. If you've played a map enough times, I'm sure all of us have probably, or most of us at some point, have grinded Call of Duty to the point where you know the map, you know where people are going to be after the spawn. So yeah, you just have that mini-map in your head. And so providing that mini-map to maybe... People who haven't played the game as much kind of closes that skill gap and at least lets them know, okay, the hallway has a corridor to the left and maybe if someone's shooting, it shows a red dot so that they can see, okay, there's someone down there. It doesn't show you exactly where they're at, but at least gives you that heads up information because an experienced player is going to know there's a player spawn down that hallway to the left and like 80% of the time there's someone down there. So yeah, I think mini-maps are definitely buffed. And uh, yeah, with that, I'm going to end a buff debuff for the day. I know there's some more topics. Don't worry, I have a bookmark. Your topic will be read eventually. Um, I just don't want to take too much time away from the guest today. So speaking of that, um, our guest today is Arash Samander, who I've been getting to know recently. He actually uh, discovered the Game Dev Field Guide and came onto our Discord and reached out and we talked... And yeah, I think he's going to make a great guest. In fact, spoiler, I already have heard his segment, and he is a great guest. Today he's going to talk to you about playtesting and give, really honestly, a huge deep dive into playtesting. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Arash Samander. (laughs) 
Hello. I was asked here today by Zach to share some of my industry experience with you, and I decided that I would do it on playtesting. But before I get started, I thought it might be a good idea to introduce myself so you can decide if you want to listen to this guy or not. My name is Arash Samander. I'm a professional designer, artist, lecturer, and entrepreneur based out of Helsinki, Finland. I've worked over five plus years as a professional game designer and producer and consultant in the Finnish games industry. I have a master's degree in game design and production and teach in various schools, lecture in various universities, as well as private companies. I helped co-found Game Dev Company, an inclusive community for aspiring game developers, as well as co-founded a social enterprise company called Rock Hubs, which builds accessible music learning communities for everyone, regardless of their age or ability. And um, it helps to bring people together through music making and performance. As you can tell, I've been through a lot and have had many successes and even more failures. And I'm here today to share my experiences with you in hopes that they can help you in your game development journey. Now, before I get started, I want to make clear that I will be presenting this from a point of view uh, of a professional designer working in a company. If you are a solo indie developer, you may not be able to do things exactly the same way, but do keep listening because you will still glean valuable information you can mold into your own testing scenarios. Also, this talk is under the assumption that you have a means by which you can find testers for your game. In the professional world, we usually pay for advertisements and or professional companies that send us qualified testers that fit within a given criteria. If you don't have that type of budget, you may be able to create a simple website or Google form or survey that collects signups and share that in various forums and communities where you feel there are players who are actually your player type. Ask around, you'll find them, especially if you're able to give some type of reward for testing like the digital wallpaper, their names in credits, or a copy of your game when it's released. Also, just to be clear, this is one way to do playtesting, not the only way. So take what you can and use it and change it to what works for you. Finally, I'll be speaking in a way that you'll be able to interact with your playtesters in the same physical space. I know that COVID-19 may cause us some problems, but you can also try to use a digital means to simulate a lot of the same techniques. For example, webcams, microphones, streaming their desktops, and using some other type of uh, recording software, etc., etc. Let's get started. So playtesting. One of the most important and critical things a developer can do is also one of the most uncomfortable, and that's getting user feedback. Making games is an art form, and there is a lot of passionate artists that put their blood, sweat, and tears into their work. So any type of feedback is scary, especially negative feedback, which can quickly hurt our fragile egos. If we want to be professionals, though, we need to look beyond that negative feedback and find the root cause of it. We should take all feedback as an opportunity to make our games even better. Playtesting is the only true way that we as designers can guarantee that the ideas and theories we hold towards our game are actually true. 
Remember, these testers are our potential customers, so we should get as much feedback as early as possible. Testing can even be done with paper and pencil long before anything is even developed. There are many different aspects of a game that can be tested, and this could create an entirely separate discussion of its own. But for now, as designers, we should emphasize our tests as actual gameplay, the foundation of our games, our audience. When testing, we need to take into account who it is that is testing our game. Early on, if working in a company, tests usually involve fellow coworkers, then eventually family and friends. Of course, in the indie space, this may be the other way around. Though this may work in the beginning, it is best to bring in people that we believe are actually in our target audience. Of course, just having any gamer play it is still useful, but we should remember that people that actually play a lot of video games have developed knowledge and skills that can transfer from one game to another. So they may easily understand your game and how it is played. If they fall into your target audience, then great. If not, really make sure you're not doing yourself a disservice by getting the wrong testers. You will quickly realize during your testing if that audience member falls into that category based on their reactions, their feedback, and the gameplay session. Speaking of having the wrong testers, I remember once having to work on a murder mystery game. I disliked playing those type of games because I'd usually get to a point in the game where I'd get stuck and unable to progress, eventually quitting and never returning to the game. Remember, this was pre-internet days, so unless I had a magazine with a walkthrough, I was stuck. So years later, when I was tasked with making this type of game, I decided that I'd make a murder mystery game for people that hated murder mystery games. To solve my issue, I had incorporated an intuition ability that highlighted clues in the game. Think Batman detective skills. By using up some intuition, which is basically energy you would gain by matching up clues you discovered. This would allow people who had trouble finding the clues to work through problems easier. In the end, I believe that many of the features I had incorporated would make the game more accessible to a more casual audience. During testing, I immediately discovered I had the wrong audience, and many of the designs I thought were clear for everyone were not. One of the players who I thought would be in the target audience seemed to have never used a keyboard and mouse to play games. So even though the movement was WASD, the mouse controlled the camera, and there were on-screen instructions, they were completely unable to move forward. Unfortunately, she played the game with one hand, first moving the player around with the keys and then using the mouse to look around the screen. It was agonizing to watch them try to get through a simple doorway. I realized at that moment that I had chosen the wrong audience for the medium I was testing. Another tester while playing began to play the clue matching puzzle in reverse. When a correct match was made, the link would turn green, thus locking in place, and the player would be rewarded with some more intuition energy. When the match was wrong, it would remain red and cost them some energy for making a bad match. So they completely drained all of their intuition and were unable to progress in the game. When asked why they kept making red connections, they said, Red is good, green is bad. 
though this went completely against almost everything I knew about the meaning behind colors, it made me realize that I may have had an internal bias. Just because I thought that green was always seen as positive, I had literally designed all the puzzles with that in mind. I never took into account that people may see things otherwise. What if they had been colorblind? Actually, red-green is one of the most common forms of colorblindness. The lesson from this is that of all people, you are the worst person to test your game. This is because you're too close to it and become biased. The more fresh eyes you can get on the game, the better. So bringing in people who you don't know but feel are actually in your target audience is crucial. Don't wait till it's too late and everything has already been implemented. Do it early and often throughout development, each time learning and adjusting based on the learnings. Remember, you don't have to implement everything you learn, but it does help to show if your game is still on the right track. Your testing roles. There are many different locations and ways to test. We will discuss one example scenario here, which will help to mitigate some of the common issues that normally arise during testing. Friendly reminder, it is best to practice and rehearse these tests internally in your company in advance so you know how to conduct the test properly. Again, testing day should not be the first time you tried to run the test. On the testing day, there should be only three people present, the designer, the host, and the tester, each having a different role. The host. The host is a representative of the company whose responsibilities are to make the guest feel welcome and comfortable. They could be part of the development team, the business side, or marketing. The important thing is that they're good with people. For example, even someone from human resources could be a good host as long as they have some understanding of the game. The host is also the person that will be facilitating the entire test, as well as asking all of the questions of the tester which have been prepared in advance. The designer. The designer's job is to sit quietly after introductions, of course, and observe the test, taking notes with pen and paper. The designer should almost be a ghost, an invisible observer. They are not permitted to speak unless absolutely necessary and must ask all questions via notes handed to the host. Finally, the tester. This is the individual who is assumed to be of the target audience for the game being played. They must be treated with respect and rewarded for their time. Movie ticket vouchers and other gift cards are reasonable gifts and go a long way towards motivating them to cooperate. They should also be told their rights to privacy, for example, if something's being recorded and or how that will be used afterwards because of GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation here in Europe, as well as asked to sign any NDAs, which are non-disclosure agreements, if necessary. So it's usually better to inform them of this in advance so they aren't suddenly surprised and decide to walk out because they don't agree with any of the testing requirements. So now a testing scenario. In our test, there should be a separate room that is comfortable and quiet so the player can feel at ease. The host will greet the tester and guide them to the room where they will be introduced to the game designer and be told that the designer is just there to quietly observe. Just as a side note, 
you don't have to share your actual roles on the development team with the user. You don't have to say, this is John, the designer of the game. He will be watching your every move. Instead, just say, this is John, one of the other team members. He'll be here to help facilitate the test with me. The tester won't be able to play naturally if they feel they're being watched and evaluated by the game's creators. So after introductions, the host will then explain to the tester how the testing scenario will work. They should know what they are testing without influencing them, how long it will take, what is expected of them, and how they're being compensated. They will then be told that they can ask questions at any time, but we cannot guarantee that they will be answered because we don't want to give away too much of the game or how it should be played. First and foremost, the tester will be told that there are no wrong questions or answers in this testing situation, and that we want them to be open and honest in their feedback. We won't get our feelings hurt, and it is the only way that we can make the game better. Really emphasize this. This is all we care about, which is making sure that the game is the best possible game that it can be, and they're helping us to do that. They will also be told to do their best to think out loud as much as possible. Examples could be given to them like, I think I'm supposed to click on this, or why can't I get here? The more points of feedback we can get, the better, and extremely difficult to read what is going on from the player when they aren't talking. You may notice that during certain situations, the player may go quiet or make certain sounds. Really pay attention to these times as they are important. They may have gone into a flow and are enjoying the game, which is great. This is a good sign from a design point of view, but poor for testing. The host should gently, not to remove them completely from the experience, ask them what they may be thinking. If asked by the tester how they're supposed to do something, the host should do their best to ask how the tester feels they should solve that problem. The host should only guide the player in extreme situations. For example, the prototype does not load, it crashes, or they're in a place that no longer is part of the actual test. Let's give an example of a testing scenario. The player is making sounds of frustration or excitement, but not speaking. We won't know for sure what is triggering those things versus if they say, God, it's impossible to dodge those fireballs. The host could ask, why do you feel that way? They might then say, well, I can't move fast enough. But it would be a mistake to assume the character's speed should be adjusted based off of this feedback. Instead, the host should continue asking for more details. What do you think you're supposed to do to escape? Well, try not to get hit by dodging. Then if the host knows that they are completely missing a safe spot behind a boulder, they could be hiding behind, and the player has finally given up, the host could only then ask, do you think there are other ways the player could escape? And if they say no, then we have a better sense that the boulder may not be clearly defined. Of course, in the end, you could ask the tester if they notice the boulder, but that should only be done when you're sure they have given up. If they then say, I didn't even notice, then say, that's okay, it's not your fault, that helps us. If the tester has said, maybe make it bigger or darker or make the player faster, say, 
those are all great ideas. Thanks. We will take them into account. But don't say you will or will not do something. It's not the job of the tester to tell you how to fix your game. They don't understand the repercussions of changes. That's your job to decide what does or does not get implemented. During the playtest, the designer should try to position themselves outside of the direct view of the tester if possible. If the designer can also see the tester's facial expressions, this is even better. Since it's almost impossible to see the screen and the face at the same time, a camera could be used, but one should be careful. This may make the player feel uncomfortable. Being off to one side is also possible. There's also the possibility to split up the role so that the host is paying attention to the tester's face and emotions while the designer is paying attention to the screen. When something is noteworthy, the host and the designer should take note as well as what time it occurred. Remember, the designer should do their best to stay invisible during the testing session. If you as the designer have a question to ask from the tester or want to communicate with the host, for example, to tell them they may have accidentally been influencing the tester, then write it down and pass that note to the host. It is then up to the host to handle it from there and ask the question or to change their line of questioning if they feel it is possible at that moment. Else you may have to wait to ask it later after the play session. This personally happened to me once where the host was from our marketing department and he asked the tester, don't you think this icon should be bigger? Which could have been seen as a loaded question. At that moment, I could tell that the host was thinking more of the game's marketing than being the actual host. After the session in which he and the supervisor thought the session had gone well, I had informed them that it had gone very poorly because they turned the test into a marketing experiment, not a user test. Of course, they didn't agree. In the end, they took what the user said and made the changes they had wanted to see, not what actually happened during the gameplay. Let's just say that in the end, that multi-million euro project failed because player testing had become how to make the interface better for selling in-game items and less about actual gameplay. Always remember, testers have a lot of pressure on them and they can easily tell you what they think you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. So you have to be vigilant to ask things in the right way, else you will throw the entire test away. This is again why it is important to be very clear with the testing team what they are testing and to practice the test in advance internally so that everyone is on the same page. After the session is over, the tester could be given a very short survey or interview. The question should be very specific and relevant to what lessons we're trying to be learned from the play session. It's also the time to ask follow-up questions because this is the time that most of the information is still fresh in the tester's head. Of course, we should be realistic and not assume they will remember moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. So have the host only ask very specific gameplay questions during actual gameplay if possible. During this time, the designer may speak as well, if necessary, only to get clarification on something that might have happened during the play test. Not, I repeat, not to tell the player what they should have done or what they missed or didn't understand. This is not about the designer's ego. It's about making a better game. Asking the right questions. 
During and after our playtest, we need to make sure that we're collecting good data and information by tracking gameplay physically with our eyes and ears and with code and cameras and screen capture software if possible, as well as asking the right questions. The right questions and observations are ones that lead to actionable outcomes. This means questions like, is the game fun are not useful to us. We should see, does the player quickly become bored, frustrated, lost, or confused? Remember, not all questions are asked directly of the tester, but can also be observed in their actions. For example, have they discovered loopholes in the game or an entirely new way to play? What emotions do they have? Do they want to continue playing the game over and over, which is a good sign? Survey questions should be thought through in advance by the team to see what is most important and relevant and useful for the playtest session. Survey questions should, for example, be graded on a five-point scale using descriptive and clear choices ranging from terrible to excellent, along with a common area at the bottom. Not too many questions should be asked on a survey either, as the player will already be worn out from the playtest. After the test is over, reward the tester with what was promised and help them find their way out and mention to them how they will be contacted in the future if another test is needed, etc. Finally, reviewing the learnings. After the tester has left, the host and designer should sit down and review the session, taking note of important events that occurred along the way with uh, answers to questions and or interviews. Then they should do their best to draw up some basic conclusions which could actually be taken into account, shared with the team, and implemented based on the available time and resources. It should be noted that it's better to test as many people as you can before actually taking action because the most important issues should come up over and over across multiple sessions. One test session, though better than none, is not always going to give you the best overview of what works and doesn't work in your game. When analyzing, always remember that the feedback the tester is giving might not seem relevant, but it should be taken seriously because it may lead to a deeper problem. The most important thing is to try and understand the underlying meaning of what is being said. You can always have a tester come back to test again in the future, but remember that the more times they test, the more biased they become because they will no longer have fresh eyes like they had the very first time that they played. So it's important to mix up your testers and get new ones often. In summary, to review and wrap up, always remember to find the right type of players that will test your games and do your best not to influence them during your testing sessions. Remember to pay attention to all of the clues they give during the test, verbal and nonverbal, that may lead you to discovering issues with your game. Also, doing playtesting well is something that is learned over time. The more you can playtest through the different stages of your game's development, the better. The more you do it, the better you'll get and higher chance for the financial success of your game. With that, I hope you found my talk useful, even though I've only scratched the surface of playtesting. I'm sure that you may have many more questions after hearing this talk, so feel free to contact me via Twitter at Samander. That's like commander, but instead of the C-O, you use S-A. 
and follow our game dev community on Twitter at game dev company for future updates on our upcoming content and events. You can also find me hanging out in the game dev field guide community discord. If you want to just chat or say hello with that, I'll leave you with a friendly reminder to fail fast, fail often, but even more importantly, learn from those failures. Again, my name is Arash Samander, and thank you for spending your time with me here today. And there you have it. What a great talk about playtesting from Arash Samander. I hope after listening to this, you can really see the value in getting good playtesting results and not influencing your playtester and being able to deal with like real-time feedback and I think he says uh, earlier in his segment he talks about our fragile ego as creatives and yeah it's so true sometimes it like makes me really uncomfortable to watch someone play test my game and and they don't play it in the way that I thought but it's an essential part for making your game better and I hope now you can see that and thanks to Arash I at least now know better ways to do it than ways I was doing before so Thanks again to Arash Samander for doing this. I don't think people realize it's kind of like a lot of work to record a a talk this long and send it over. So I'm always super thankful to our guests. And yeah, if you'd like to support Arash, check him out on Twitter. That's um, at Samander on Twitter. Uh, He's also over on our Discord. And you should definitely go ask some questions uh, about playtesting. He was kind of saying it goes even deeper than he talked about. So the man is just a fountain of information. So yeah, with that, I'm going to end the episode. If you want to get a hold of me, I am on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. We also have an open community discord. I'll leave the link for that in the show notes. Our monthly game jam is coming to a close, so I will definitely be streaming the submissions on Twitch. Um, That's just at Zaccavelli underscore. That also means that the monthly game jam for next month, for the month of July, will be starting soon. Probably by the time you've heard this, it'll it'll have started. Definitely go try that out and make a game in one month if you haven't before. Even if you're a brand new beginner, I think it's an excellent format to get a completed project under your belt. So yeah, go uh, check that out. So yeah, with that, I guess I'll just say thanks for listening and I'll catch you on the next installment of the Game Dev Field Guide.